This week, I have an amazing entrepreneur. I have someone who has helped generate billions of dollars in revenue in his lifetime. Let me say that one more time. Billions with a B is a book called, excuse me, he has a book coming out called Billion, where he talks about his life story and everything is dim. His name is Cheyenne Cheyenne. He is an amazing person. Let me tell you about him. When he was super young, and I say super young, we're talking about 15, he created an herbal ecstasy pill. This herbal ecstasy pill was a non-tropic pill that sparked the 100% legalization smart drug movement. He was making millions, millions of dollars at 15 years old. All of us at 15, if we had that money, we'd be going to the grocery store, we'd be getting some ice cream, but he was out there and he was not finished. He then turned to his next idea, his next invention. He was an early innovator in the vaping world, inventing the industry first vapor vaporizer, as well as hundreds of other multi-million dollar products. So he obviously has entrepreneurship spirit. He has those ideas in the head and he's making that happen. He did not stop there. He then further moved the staff himself as an award-winning entrepreneur, Amazon expert, inventor, author, and filmmaker. His career as a serial entrepreneur spans more than 30 years. And once again, that B number, billion dollars in revenue. His family products on Amazon consistently outpace sales of hundreds of brands on the platform, making him a sought after expert and consultant for Fortune 500 companies. So today we're gonna to go over how he was able to create the herbal ecstasy, the pill, how he was able to be a, a vaporizer innovator, talk about Amazon, recurring revenue, entrepreneurship, and more. With that being said, I'm so excited to have him on. I know he's waiting to come in. So we want to do our thank you audience before we bring him in. Audience, Loft Gang, Ride and Die. Thank you so much again every week for listening. However you listen on Apple, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the posts that we do, all the marketing. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. If you like this message, please do go rate, subscribe all of it on all the channels so that way you stay up to date with our weekly vlog videos our weekly podcast videos and so much more with that being said laugh fam i know you're excited to meet cyan so welcome aboard how are you doing today randy thanks so much man honored to be on such a great uh intro i hope i could live up to that um i think certainly my story could but i'm super excited to be on so thanks for having me my pleasure and i think let's just dive into it. So the story, 15 year old creating ecstasy, you know, a lot of people probably know the term ecstasy in two ways, either external happiness or in the rave drug pill ecstasy and all that goes with it. So I would love for you to kind of talk about how you got into that at such a young age and what you did and how I was able to help people. Yeah, sure. So we came to this country as immigrants. I immigrated from Iran. I came here five years old and i was like this is gonna be freaking awesome like this is gonna be great <laughs> and then i get here and i'm like oh shit, i don't really speak the language and a lot of people are assholes because this was during iran contra and i was just getting like the shit kicked out of me i was like whoa 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 i was king of the king of the heap in in tehran and then here like you know i'm a second class citizen third class citizen this is nuts and so i grew up you know during uh, Iran-Contra times, 1980s, Ronald Reagan, trickle-down economics, all that stuff. And kind of we, my parents managed to buy a house in a upcoming area that became one of the most affluent areas in Los Angeles. Wasn't when we bought in. 
And I remember the real estate agent calling my dad and there was like one house that we could afford. My dad had like shitty jobs and, you know, he was working at like pizza places and dry cleaners and that kind of thing. Just, you know, working crazy hours, just trying to make ends meet when we came from Iran. And I remember that, you know, they really wanted a house after some years. And so there, the broker said, Hey, you can get this house. It's the one that's within your budget, but there's a problem with it. And he said, well, what, what's the problem? And the broker said, well, there's a commune of, I think they're Hare Krishnas uh, living there and no one's been able to get them out. And my dad said, but it's so much cheaper than all the others. This is the only thing we can afford. So we'll take it. And, you know, there, everyone's looking at him like, all right, so you're going to have like literally a commune, like a hippie commune of like, I think it was like Hare Krishnas. There were some like <laughs> hell's angels. It was like a craziness. It, they had a big like, near Olympic sized pool in the backyard, they were using it as a koi pond. Like it was nuts. Oh, wow. And I think like one of the guys had some relation to somebody in the city or the departments allegedly. And so it was difficult to get them evicted. And so we moved into the house with these people still living out there in the back. And I just remember every day my mom would make tea and she would bring it out to them and they would, my dad would bring them food and they never said anything. They just, you know, my, my folks were just being super kind to them. And after a couple of weeks, the, the leader of them came and was like, Hey, you guys have been so kind. Everyone here has been so mean to us and demanding and, you know, threatening us and all kinds of legal stuff. And what can we do for you? My dad said, look, you know, you guys, eventually have to move on. I've got a family here. We bought this house, you know, we're not rich people, you know, so do you think you can move along? And they did. And so we moved into this neighborhood and the neighborhood very quickly became affluent. And I started looking around the people that were moving in. And, you know, I was, you know, this fast forward several years, I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. I'd never been to a restaurant. And I remember the, the rich kid next door, you know, they paid however much money for their house. And, you know, we're still sitting in this like shack, you know, being surrounded by this like massive gentrification and buildup. And I remember, you know, thinking, wait, so what? I went to his house and he's like, okay, so dinner, here's a menu. We're going to a restaurant. And I was like, what? How, how, you, you mean you can order anything you want? So, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I can get the hamburger. <laughs> and the pizza and the guy's gonna i gotta see this i got it so that's what it was like i never had that kind of exposure you know my mom you know we'd be like hey all the kids are going to mcdonald's i want to go to mcdonald's she's like don't worry i make you mcdonald's right here it would take you know a piece of frozen meat put it between two pieces of wonder bread and go here it's as good as mcdonald's and we would look at it and go oh mom you know but that was you know we grew up poor and you know with that kind of mindset and so as I got older, you know, my parents' wish for me was really the pinnacle of success for them, as, as most Persian Jewish families, was you have to become a doctor. So, you know, they would be like, look at Mr. Gasvand across the street. He has Mercedes. He has big house. Why don't you be like Mr. Gasvand across the street? And I remember thinking to myself, Randy, fuck, man. If like, that's the pinnacle of success, dude, I'm just going to go surf. Like, just let me go out there. And so I'm going to go on the beach. I don't know how to surf, but I'm, I'm gone. Because I started to think that that guy, yeah, sure. He's a doctor, but his house, he doesn't own his house. 
the bank owns his house. And that Mercedes that he's got parked in the driveway, bank owns that too. That's leased. And this guy leaves at 5 a.m. in the morning and comes back late, and there's nothing mm. wrong with hard work, but he's selling his hours. And I knew early on intuitively that I didn't want to do that. So when I hit 15 years old and ready to get into high school, I just fucking bailed. I was like, you know what? I'm out. I don't know what's out there, but it can't be any worse than what's around here. And so I was basically sleeping in abandoned cars, abandoned buildings. I realized that uh, there was all this construction going around. It was a big boom at that time in the you know early 90s in Los Angeles. So they would build these huge apartment complexes with hundreds of units. And I realized it would take them two years to complete some of these units. So I figured out that if you could get the code to get in, you could sneak into these apartments and crash there at night and wake up before anybody knows and be out of there. And that was glorious. That's how I lived. You know, I your didn't parents have knew you were doing this. What's that? Did your parents know you were doing this? No, no, of course not. No, no. I, I kind of, uh, you know, uh, for, for all intents and purposes, left home and cut ties at that You're time because I had to do what I had to do to succeed. And, you know, I decided, hey, man, you know, I want to have the Porsche. I want to have the, the big houses and the fancy vacations. And I want to eat. I want people to go to a restaurant and order food off the menu and have somebody bring me the hamburger and the pizza. You know, so th that that was my thought. I wanted to do all of that stuff, and it wasn't happening with me staying home. So, I, at the time, I met a mentor, which I write about in my upcoming book, and he slowly started to coach me about how the world works and how business works and the secrets of influence. And at that time, I started to get involved in the electronic music scene, the rave scene, which was just exploding at that time. So Randy, I started going to these raves and I realized that these parties start late at 2 a.m., which was ideal for me. Because remember, I didn't have a permanent place to sleep. And if you know electronic music, there's a drone, this metronoming drone behind it that just made it very comfortable for me to fall asleep behind the speakers. If you sleep behind the speaker, it's like a gentle massaging you to sleep. So I would go to the raves, I would have fun, I would meet people, and then I'd crash out behind the speakers and party would go to four or five in the morning. And then I'd wake up and crawl out of there with everybody else. And it would be, it would be glorious. It was, it was absolutely fun times. More power to you. I don't know if I could sleep at a rave. <laughs> yeah. Well, 15, it was a different story. You know, 15, you could do, you could do anything. So I started looking at this and going, Hey, you know, I, I got to step my game up. I want to, you know, I'm going to, you know, make my millions. I got to figure out how to do it. So how is money being made? I was like, surely the promoters, the people that are throwing these parties are making money. Nope. Always broke, always running away from the DJs and everyone else for not paying everybody. Must be the music, must be the DJs that are making money. Nope. Those dudes are the brokest ass dudes out there. They're just standing outside going, why isn't somebody paying us? We went and we did everything we did. Why is nobody paying us? And the buildings, generally speaking, that raves and underground parties were thrown in in those days were usually broken in. So, you know, somebody would climb the pole, grab the electricity, somebody else would climb in through the back and unlock the doors, and that's where the party would be. But these parties were happening week after week, every weekend. Who do you think was making money from these? The drug dealers. Wow, that was quick. Okay, usually it takes people a couple <laughs> guesses. So I like that. Yeah, I've been in the right. EDM scene a little bit. I, I understand what you're talking about. I love it. 
So it was the drug dealers. And I noticed that there was always guys hanging around, smiling. They would give a little cash to the promoters, a little cash to the DJs, just making sure everybody was okay. And they'd be doing very well. They'd be driving nice cars and having, having a, a really great time. So I thought to myself, that's it, drugs. Now, simultaneously, the supply of MDMA, methyl dioxymethamphetamine, what we know as molly or ecstasy, had dried up. Fairly complex drug to synthesize and it was mostly being made in Europe, in uh, Amsterdam, mm -hmm. in um, the UK, and in a few places around there. And when the government crashed down and stopped letting any supply in to the United States, these drug dealers were really hard up. So they started selling all kinds of stuff, hoping that people would take it instead of ecstasy. Now, that's where I was, right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought to myself, hey, Maybe I should be selling drugs. And then I realized that I was a neurotic Iranian Jewish kid and that I would be really incredibly bad at crime. I thought about crime and I was like, dude, you know, I, I watch people who do crime and the majority of them are really bad at it. And I, I look at him and I'm like, you, sir, should find another job because crime is just not for you. Like, don't do crime, sir. People do all kinds of bad stuff with crime. They write down their crimes. They, it's just, a lot of people should not be in crime and, and me included. So I, I took that and I checked it off my box and I said, you know what? Crime is not for me, but what if I could find a way to create a pill that was like ecstasy, did similar stuff, had no side effects and was legal, then I'd be in the money. So I started calling around. I went to the library, I grabbed the yellow pages, I contacted authors, I contacted writers, herbalists, I drove down to Chinatown to herbalist stores, I, I got people to work for me and I didn't have any money, but I sure as hell didn't have the wherewithal to understand that I could fail. Mm. So the only way forward for me was success. And then one day I had a bunch of goo filled pills that I had made in literally the kitchen of my girlfriend's house at the time. And she would sneak me in through the back because she didn't want her dad to know that I was uh, going into the house and certainly using their kitchen of their nice house as a manufacturing plant for herbal ecstasy. Yeah. And I would, you know, take the pills and I went to my first rave and I looked around and I saw the drug dealer who was very upset. And I looked at all the grumpy people standing around because their drug supply had dried out very early that evening. And, you know, I, I reached down into my pants, checked my testicles. They were still there. And I walked up to the dude, looked him straight in the face. And I said, Hey buddy, uh, what do you think about selling this? And he said, fuck off. Who are you? Like, you know, are you a cop? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, are you a narc? Are you a narc? Are you all that stuff? And I said, no, man, look at me. Do I look like a narc? Do I, you know, and he was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And after some convincing, couple hours later, people were jumping up, dancing, pointing at me. The DJs were pointing at me. Then the dude came back and he looked at me and he said, how soon can I get more? So, you know, the, the, I was in the club, the drug dealer sold all the, all, all of my pills. And then he came back and looked at me and was like, dude, like, I didn't think this was going to work. How can I get more? How soon can you get me more? And when he said that it was all over, I knew that it was on. And from that point, it went from one drug dealer to 10 drug dealers to a hundred to a thousand to 10,000 to it becoming a global phenomenon. We were selling in tower records. We were selling in urban outfitters, GNC, 7-Eleven, 
all the big stores across the country were carrying our product. And the interesting thing is that this was a product that broke barriers, distribution barriers, because we were able to sell it in unconventional places. We were able to sell it at Larry Flint was a big customer. He sold it in all his sex shops. We sold it in new age bookstores, but tower records, this product kept them afloat for a long time because they were selling our pills along with records. A lot of independent record stores were carrying our product. So this was the type of product that gained global acclaim. And we were in 32,000 stores until one day I woke up, I went into my office at Venice Beach. I had opened an office and I realized that something big was happening that day. And I got, you know, all the news channels were there. There was news trucks parked outside. There was cameras outside. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And my secretary, this was back in the days when we had secretaries, we're talking pre-internet, told me, hey, Shaheen, you just broke a billion dollars in revenue and everybody wants to have you on sam donaldson with nightline montel williams um uh, we've had two newsweek covers london observer everybody wants you on shaheen that's so cool i love that yeah but it is cool except for the fact that i had no shit moment where i said holy fuck how much is a billion dollars i didn't even fucking know i had an attorney that i hired who was some venice beach hippie who you know, it was kind of like running around, like, you know, philandering all over the place. I don't think I had an accountant and I didn't know how much a billion dollars was. That was my anxiety. And I was standing around being super anxious going, holy shit, they're going to ask me on national TV how much a billion is. And I don't know. Now, mind you, we broke a billion dollars pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-social media, before Facebook, before any of this stuff happened, our company broke a billion dollars in a niche that we created in a market that we dominated with virtually no competition. And then people calmed me down and they were like, Hey, you know, it's not about that. They just want to know the MTV wants to have the long hair kid on who's selling the pills at the raves. And so I started going about the press and I started doing media, you know, must've been on hundreds of shows and magazines and newspapers. We had, uh, we were featured on the cover of Details Magazine with Chris Cornell of Soundgarden at the time. And uh, there's a big photo shoot with a famous photographer artist, David LaChapelle, that we did. That's the, you know, now the cover of my book. You're, you're like, what, 18 at this time? Uh, I think somewhere. Yeah. So just under 20, I think I was. Got it. Yeah. And that's really cool. So uh, can I pause you there and ask a couple of questions to unpack what you just talked about? I think the first question that pops in my head, and I know a lot of people talk about for my podcast is we've had a lot of people like you who came to America and they saw their parents struggle or they didn't have anything and that made them have the drive to want to have financial freedom, but not in the corporate life and like entrepreneurship. So why do you think that's something about a lot of people who are um, foreigners who come to America have that sense of individual ability and want to succeed as an entrepreneur versus a standard nine to five type of job? Because we have grit. That's the thing. If you look at Iranians, Armenians, Koreans, you know, Chinese, anybody that comes to this country as an immigrant, you know, life is very different outside of the United States. And where I came from, Iran, even though I was very young when I left there, we would leave home as a five-year-old and I'd be running with a little five-year-old gang of kids 
and we'd be doing all kinds of stuff. If I came home and my knees were scraped up, my mom would be like, what'd you do? Go, go wash your knees and come to, come to dinner. If I got into a fight, that was between me and the other kid. There was no intervention, not mm. really. And I think it's that type of adversity and also not being spoon fed that allows you to build character and to build discipline, which at the end of the day builds grit. And it's that grit that leads you to have this type of discipline as you move forward in life and to have almost this fearlessness about you. When you look at the great entrepreneurs in, in our world today, one of the things that you notice about them is that they're really fearless. Like you look at Elon Musk, like mm -hmm. that dude is fucking amazing, man. That guy, you're like, holy shit. Okay, so you did PayPal, but you have a car company. And then you're like digging a hole under LA for cars to go through. But then you're building this hyperloop. But then at the same time, you, you're going to space. Like he's fucking fearless. He doesn't give a shit. And it's, it's that grit, it's that life experience that led him to that point. Obviously, you know, Musk uh, immigrated from South Africa, which is for all intensive purposes, a fairly rough place um, in comparison to other places. And so it's that lack of guaranteed safety. It's that little bit of danger and uncertainty in the world that develops that core strength. Love it. And I think that's a really good segue because, you know, every other person who has come on has said the same thing is, you know, we just have a different mindset than say someone's grown up here in a more comfortable life. It's like we, our parents came here to make a better life for their kids, not for themselves. They knew that hopefully being in America would present more opportunities. And for your parents, it was, hey, go be a doctor, go be the Jewish person out there with the nine to five working all day. You did not take that route. You created something, you created the ecstasy. And I want to take it to a drugs for a moment. You were selling drugs that were herbal and they weren't like true drugs to drug dealers who were then giving the people a raves. So what was different in your drugs that made it um, not illegal that the normal MDMA that people think about are raves uh, made that illegal in the same vein were people still enjoying your drugs the same less more or just because you were able to supply it you were able to overtake the market even though it wasn't considered a hard uh, illegal drug does that make sense yeah so first and foremost we sell them as supplements not drugs and we sell them as supplements not drugs so we never went out there and said hey this is a drug a drug is something that's regulated by the fda or the dea and it's usually made with chemicals, although there are natural drugs out there. So with that said, what I could tell you is that I learned from the research that I did and the people that I talked to that you can combine certain herbs and they could for a good degree mimic some of the effects of MDMA, methyl dioxymethamphetamine. So we used a particular herb, which is now banned called ephedra, which was glorious at that time and another herb called guarana which is from brazil it's high in caffeine it's a nut or a seed or a fruit or something like that and that stuff is great as well it's like a kit and then when you combine the two and you mixed a bunch of other plants and ingredients in there it created quite a nice party effect so that was the general gist of what mm -hmm. herbal xc was about got it 
And are you guys still selling it today everywhere out there? So we have the brand and we sell products under the brand, but Herbal Ecstasy in its original form is no longer available. I think eventually I will relaunch it as a male performance uh, pill um, or as a, just a general lifestyle athletic performance brand. Got but it. really the stuff that made it feel like ecstasy was mostly banned in the probably the early 2000s, late 90s. You can take a pat on the back for that one, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, I tell the story in my book, you know, it's, and, and it's actually, you know, it's pretty interesting. One of the big pharma companies, allegedly, in the 1980s had a drug. This drug was called Prozac. And Prozac was one of these serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which basically, you know, blocked the reuptake of serotonin, which led a lot of people who were depressed to be happy. And if you remember the baby boomers in the 1980s and early 90s were really high up on Prozac. Prozac was a big deal. Everybody was getting it prescribed for everything. You go to your doctor, you're like, I'm a little blue today. He'd give you Prozac. Well, it turns out that Prozac allegedly had a very well-known side effect. And that side effect is that a major lingling go ding ding uh basically <laughs> erectile dysfunction erectile dysfunction and that was both for men and for women it, it it allegedly led to some types of sexual dysfunction and allegedly that same company or similar companies had an answer in the 90s when that whole thing was over and it was a little blue pill that people are still taking today. Now they had spent billions of dollars doing clinical trials and marketing this little blue pill that was the answer to all the erectile dysfunction and all the sexual dysfunction that the baby boomers were having. Only one problem, Randy. There's this long-haired Iranian kid with uh, a real chip on his shoulder and no government regulation selling a pill that people are taking for the exact same reason that you don't need a doctor's prescription for, and you can take it at any time. And it allegedly has fewer side effects. And that was a big problem. So mm -hmm. the pharma companies allegedly lobbied the government. And that's when the problem started. Got it. And that actually segues to my last question on this subject before we can continue forward with your story is, as you just said, you probably got bigger than your wildest imagination and you had to go up against big pharma corporations. As a young entrepreneur, just trying to find a way, what were some of the maybe top three, four things you learned, like creating an LLC to protect yourself? How do I get my money stashed somewhere so that way someone's not gonna come rob me? Things like that, that you think is important for entrepreneurs today to understand how they can be successful as they start to grow and build their business. That's a great question. I think that in general, it's none of those things. I think in general, I'll tell you the number one problem that most entrepreneurs have. And that's that they have the old way of thinking. Most entrepreneurs think to themselves, dude, I'm gonna, Randy, I'm gonna go out there and create a better mousetrap and the world it's going to beat its way to my door. And quickly they learn that in this world of social media and all these types of things that nobody gives a fuck that you have a better mousetrap. There are lots of great products out there 
without any eyeballs and they don't sell any. So what do you do? What you do is you research markets, you research distribution, and you create a product to feed into the distribution. Mm -hmm. If you give the market what it wants, what it needs, what it can't do without, and you know how to tell a better story than the next guy, you are miles ahead of somebody who's like, dude, I've built a better thingamajig and I'm going to go, go tell people about it. Cause then that person has to spend money advertising. They have to educate people. They have to build a market. They have to educate that market. They have to advertise. They have to do so much stuff. Instead, find the market, find the distribution and just give it what it needs. Tell a better story, bring extra value. And that's, you know, I teach that to my students. Now I've got a, a mastery course called Amazon mastery where people come in and we teach them how to start six, seven figure businesses from nothing on the Amazon platform. And we do that all the time. And that's one of the, the, the biggest blocks that people have is dude, I don't have a product. I really want to start an Amazon store. I really want to sell on Amazon. I see all my friends making money on there. I see all your students making money on there. I just don't have a product. And the answer to that is good. It's good that you don't have a product. Now we we've got somewhere to start. We can go research the market, find what the market needs and feed it that. And it's so much easier when you do that. And that's what I did with herbal ecstasy. I saw what the market needed and I fed it that, and it's such a better way. And, you know, at the end of the day, none of this stuff, Randy is get rich quick. I know that yeah. you may have a, a little bit of a, a, a more useful, younger audience and in the world of social media that we live now in the world of TikTok and the 15 second soundbite, everybody is chasing shiny things. And you look on TikTok, you look on Instagram and all these people that are really fucking good at marketing stuff on social media have the Lamborghinis in the background and they've got the yachts and the mm -hmm. bikini girls and they're shooting Uzis with the bikini girls in the back. And then, you know, they want to just sell you this course and people will buy that course. Why? Not because they, they have any belief that it's going to get them the Lambos or the girls or the yachts or any of that stuff, but they buy it because it's a lottery ticket. Whereas before they didn't have hope, now they do. And what I teach is instead of that, have foundational thinking. Take the time to invest in four foundations. The first foundation should be some type of real estate. Even if you don't have money to invest in real estate, you can start learning about it now. Your time in learning about cash flow positive real estate is an investment. That's a pillar. Everybody in this country should have some investment in real estate. And there's other ways to do it. I know people who uh, rent out properties and then they Airbnb them and they're making seven figures a year doing that. You don't have to have money to get into the real estate game. The second pillar in the foundation that I tell people about is that you should learn about the stock market and have some money in the markets, compound interest. It's brilliant. That's how Warren Buffett is one of the richest men in the world, compound interest. He invests. He holds, he understands the stock market. Fantastic. The third area, which is where we come in, is I think everybody now should have an e-commerce business. Real estate is through the roof right now as we're recording this. And 
you know, almost, almost in August of 2021, real estate's through the roof at the highest it's ever been in the United States and likely worldwide. But doesn't mean that you can't start looking at these other pillars. And this is the reason for this four foundation thinking. So you have your e-commerce business, which still costs the same that it costs to start an e-commerce business as it did five or 10 years ago. To buy a property now is going to cost you a lot more than it did five or 10 years ago. So maybe we're going to learn about real estate, let that cool off. And in the meanwhile, focus on some of these other areas. So starting an Amazon business empowers you to start a company, start a storefront, start building out a brand, which is what we teach. We don't teach arbitrage or going out there and buying cheap stuff at Costco and reselling it. We teach you how to build your own product using what the market needs and then coming out there and building that as real estate. And the fourth pillar is going to be your job or your career, whatever you do to feed your family, to keep pampers on your kid, to make sure that, you know, the wife gets to go out to dinner and, you know, do all the great stuff that you do, or the husband goes out to dinner, however you want to look at that. But having these foundations leads you to never having a bad day. Because when I wake up in the morning, I go, oh, real estate's really, really high. That's great. But the stock market's down. I'm not bummed about it. I've got these other pillars. And this is how you build a solid foundation that you can move forward on. That's perfect. And that, that comes to that term that everyone always talks about is passive income. How do you make money when you're sleeping? And if you can have four pillars, as you said, stock market is down for the day, but your real estate's up, then you're not going to be stressed out. You're able to order the pizza and the hamburger at the same time. There you go. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a great point. Anything else around the herbal ecstasy story that you want to talk about before we move over to the vapor vaporizer? Uh, no, I mean, you know, it was a wild ride. It was super fun for any of you guys who want to hear more about it. I do have a podcast. Uh, the first chapter of the book is free and it's on Spotify, Stitcher, Google podcasts, anywhere where podcasts are found. It's called billion, how I became king of the thrill pill cult. And if you look that up, you can hear it. It's, it's a pretty well-produced episode. We're pretty proud of it. And I, I'd love to hear what you guys think of it. So um, we'll share the link in the show yep. notes. I'm sure Randy will do that. Yep. And you guys can download that for free and check out the first chapter. Great. So that again, as you said, up in the show notes. And then for his next part of the story is then moving to the vaporizer industry, which again, get in very early, be a market leader, you know, so please talk about how you're able to pivot to this next industry and what you're able to do to be successful there. Right. After herbal ecstasy, I moved on to looking at smoking. And I thought smoking is interesting because when you look at that problem, humans have been burning stuff and inhaling it from the dawn of time. The cavemen, they've showed that they, you know, they had rocks and they've made like herbs on a fire and some dude in there, you know, with hair all over his face. <laughs> you know, inhaling some, some stuff, right? So people have been <laughs> yeah. smoking things forever. Tobacco goes back thousands of years, the use of, of that stuff. But up until the 1990s, you were still doing that. Well, I thought, huh, do we really need to heat up plant material to 1200 degrees, burn it, cause combustion, smoke, charred carbon monoxide, the three carcinogenic elements of smoke, or is there a way where we could get whatever we want out of it? The cannabinoids, the nicotine, the 
active elements of the plant without having smoke tar and carbon monoxide. Turns out that if you were able to heat a plant matter to the point where it released the cannabinoids, the THC, the nicotine, the vital elements, but not heated up so much that it burns, you would have the perfect situation because you'd be able to get all the benefits without any of the smoke tar and carbon monoxide. So I went off to patenting the technology that we built and we designed and built that. And I exited that company in 2006. It since went public. It was one of the first vaporizer companies ever to go public. And we were the forerunner to all the vape and vape technology that you see today. Got it. And do you think when you were first starting that Jules, Vape, Puff Daddies, this would be as big as it is today? I did, but I saw it in a little bit of a different way. So I never used the glycerates or any of the base substrates that they use to aerosolize the plant matter. And I'll tell you why. Our lungs are intended to have clean, fresh air coming in and resting on the alveoli. They can handle some other stuff. So they can handle some oils and some other things coming in, but the less, the better. What we did is when we first invented the first vape, it was like a big ketchup bottle. And we had a big battery pack that went in. It was like a, you know, like a drill or something, you know, battery that went in. And then as time progressed, we got it smaller. I got it the size of a cigar. And then we got it the size of a small highlighter. And then finally we got it to where it was like a really small cigar. And the technology wasn't quite there at that time, but all throughout that time, what we were doing is we were heating up just organic plant matter and taking out just a little bit of the oils to do what we wanted it to do. And I felt like that was a much better place to be. It was much softer, mm -hmm. allegedly on the lungs. And we did tests. I remember with that company, we ran all kinds of tests and we showed that there was no smoke tar, carbon monoxide, none of those elements. Now with vapes, the problem is that they are, people need to have them the size of a cigarette. Well, if you have it in the size of a cigarette, you can only have a small battery. If you have a small battery, then that small battery can't produce a lot of heat, a lot of energy, mm. whereas the larger units could. So you have to come up with some kind of chemical that volatilizes and aerosolizes and can carry the oils um, at a very low temperature. So you just heat it up a little bit and it aerosolizes. That's why it looks like smoke when you're smoking a, 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 a vape. Well, the problem is that chemical, whatever it is, has not been tested on the human lungs. Mm. So when you see these companies creating these vapes and you know look by no means am i a scientist or an expert in this field at the moment there is something outside of us that's going into our lungs that may or may not be harmful and what's happened is sometimes these companies have mixed stuff in there to make whatever they were mixing before less expensive and that's caused complications. And that wasn't during my watch. It wasn't during my time. The, the devices that I built almost exclusively used heat to just extract some of those active elements directly into the lungs. And I would say and that's really a good background. Today, seeing my friends, if my friends are listening, I apologize. I'm going to call you out for a second. 
they're addicted to their jewels. They're addicted to their vapes. It's so easy nowadays to just lay in your bed, hit it, be on the couch and hit it, be at a baseball game and just hit it under your like this because you don't have to light a cigarette. So I think the effects of vape, as you just said, especially these newer technologies that aren't maybe as safe, we're going to experience probably a lot of lung disease, I think, heart disease, 30, 40 years down the road. People are hitting all this stuff that we ha don't have scientific studies for um, prepared yet. And what is it going to do? For me personally, like I don't smoke nicotine. I don't vape or anything like that. But what I know I'm going to be messed up with is my funds from texting, from video games, things like that, that some newer technology, like I just already feel my thumbs going. So like just your opinion here, like where do you think the vaping industry is going to go? What do you think these effects are going to be 30, 40 years on the road? And we're seeing generations and people getting started younger because they have the means to do it. So we don't know. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to speculate. You know, I would hope that it's not as bad as we surmise. So certain scientists have come out saying that, hey, they they think that it could be really bad. And I think it's like anything with health. I think some people will have bad effects from it and other people may not, depending on all these different topics, but primarily people's metabolic health makes a big difference. Mm. And if you're doing it when you're younger, you know, people don't talk about this a lot because they don't want young people going out there doing crazy stuff, but your body has a higher likelihood of regeneration when you're younger than when you're older. So you get away with a lot more when you're, mm. when you're younger, because your body is regenerating at a much more rapid speed. Your hormone balance is at a place where your body can heal most anything. And the older you get, if, especially if you don't take care of yourself, the more you lose those abilities. That's why when people get older, they got to watch a lot more what they eat. And, you know, maybe you could have eat, eaten something in your twenties that you now can't eat in your thirties. Mm. These kind of things happen, especially if you don't take care of yourself. So at the end of the day, the most important thing is really health and taking care of your body and, you know, the lungs, like, we can go 21 days without water. We can go a month without food, air. You're talking 10 minutes tops if you're David Blaine, you know, or Wim yeah. Hof. Wim Hof can go, I don't know how long Wim Hof can go, but, you know, five, 10 minutes maybe. So I would think you would want to take care of that. And that's not to say never to smoke or never to do that kind of stuff, but you got to do it reasonably. And unfortunately in this country in particular people can't do anything with moderation you're like no. all right well weed is legal now <laughs> like everywhere you go people are smoking with like on the bus and the train it's like dude do you really need to smoke in the library oh yeah i'm just vaping you yeah. know and it's 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 everywhere nobody can do anything in moderation here yeah. which is you know one of the problems but if if I had a choice if you want to um, enjoy things like cannabis and cannabinoids. And by the way, guys, I am not a doctor. I don't recommend any of this stuff. If you are thinking of taking any kind of supplement, please talk to your doctor, whatever it is, um, supplements or drugs, talk to your doctor because we're certainly not qualified to tell you that. But what I would say is if I were to enjoy cannabis and it's benefits as a medicine or even recreationally, not that there's anything wrong with it recreationally, I would start with taking it sublingually, which I think is probably the most benign way of taking it. There's a lot of great tinctures out there that mm. are amazing and edibles. You got to be careful, um, you know, as far as the dosage, but you know, that's probably the most 
the safest way. Outside of that, I would recommend using a whole plant vaporizer. And there's a lot of great ones out there from what I see now. And, um, you know, I haven't been in that world for a minute, but I wrote a book on it and a whole plant vaporizer is something that'll heat up the whole plant that you don't have to take the vape. And then outside of that, I would say just limit the amount that you smoke or vape because both yeah. have positives and negatives. But it's interesting though, you know, cause smoking, have you ever heard of the uh, smoker's paradox? Yes. Yes. But can yeah. you describe it for my audience in case they haven't? Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you go. Just to, you're going to say much yeah, better than so I will. It's a, it's, it's a study <laughs> done on people who smoke cigars. So people who smoke cigarettes have a lower life expectancy and a higher likelihood of cancer, melanoma, that kind of thing. People who smoke cigars are some crazy percentage. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, off the top of my head, these are unverified facts, but I think it's like 70% higher uh, likelihood of living longer and, you know, all kinds of things. And they called the smokers paradox because they can't figure out why people who are smoking carcinogenic cigars are living longer. And they, they surmise that, you know, likely it's the fact that those people have more leisure, they're more affluent, they can take more time to relax, but other people might have, you know, surmise that maybe the smoking component of it may not be as bad. I don't know, but I think it's interesting because I know that I spent a lot of time with indigenous people, uh, Aztecs, Mayans, uh, Native Americans, you know, and forgive me for messing up whatever the correct, politically correct term is for them. And I, you know, I produced films about original peoples. Maybe I'll call them original peoples. That's not offensive to anybody. And I know that for them, tobacco is a medicine. Cannabis was a medicine that was used for years and years and years. And they never got the same kinds of cancers that people in the West got. So there's something to be, to be said about that. And they, you know, they definitely were smoking it during those times. Yeah, I'm sure they were smoking at those times in a much cleaner way than some of the stuff that's going into the product today. So thank you again. One last question on the vaping industry for you. In terms of entrepreneurship now, what were some key lessons that you learned from your first business doing the ecstasy moving to this one? You're like, hey, I know not to make the same mistakes again because I already played those games. I know how to move forward with my business. Yeah. Distribution first is a key one that we talked about. And we had great distribution with Vapeer. The other one was if you can help it, don't take investors. I was all excited about people wanting to invest in my company and putting money in my company. And then I realized that, oh, dude, I've got like 14 assholes I've got to answer to now. Mm. And that really was a difficult time for me. And then when it came time to sell the company and have a nice exit and sell to another firm, I realized that I was being held back by investors that couldn't agree. So that was another important lesson that was learned. I think those two are, are kind of essential ones. And the third one is I had great advice and counsel during the Vapier times because I had all kinds of industry experts that came in and helped me with that technology. People really in, you know, stoners in general, weed heads are like fanatic. They love it. They love, <laughs> you know, they, they, they really like are like a community and kind and not the most motivated of people back in the day. 
you know, I think now, you know, with CBD and all the stuff that's going on, the money is there. So you get a lot mm. more motivated people, but back then, you know, stoners weren't very motivated, but they were very kind and very generous and giving with their time and learnings as far as what we were building goes. So it really helps a lot to bring in mentors and people who can help you on that journey. In the herbal ecstasy days, I didn't have many mentors. And maybe if I did, I'd still be sitting on a bunch of those billions or millions, you know, from that time. But instead I had to reinvent and rebuild myself. And several businesses later, you learn those lessons. Got it. And you know, the keyword mentor is something you've said a couple of times in this podcast. And every entrepreneur has come in and said, I had a mentor. It wasn't something I potentially learned in the book. It wasn't something that I saw on the podcast. It was someone that I was able to work with daily, weekly, monthly, who's walked the same route as me, can help give me that advice when I really need it, because that's really where I saw myself up level. So I love the fact that you use the word mentor there as well. Yeah, totally. That's, that's right. You know, I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, Randy, we have a tendency to work in a vacuum. We tend to think that our problems are our problems and we're, they're unique to us and we're the only people in the world that have them. And I know now because I'm in a couple mastermind groups and I have, you know, I've got a mastermind groups, I've got men's groups that I'm a member of, I've got all types of different groups and where guys that I know that are where I want to be will give me advice. And it is so helpful because I'm like, oh, wow, that's a whole new way of thinking about this. And maybe I didn't need to work in a vacuum. And that's why, you know, like with our Amazon course, one of the interesting things is that people will, uh, and, and by the way, I'll give a link to any of your viewers or listeners at the end of this, where I'll, I'll give them the one hour course for free. It's like, it's normally 200 bucks, but we'll, we'll share that with them for free for your listeners. I think, you know, one of the, one of the biggest benefits that people take away from our Amazon mastery course is the fact that there is a cohort of other like-minded people there and people that will mentor you to get your business to where you want it to go. Whereas before you'd have to work in a vacuum and work out all these problems and issues and how does this work and where do I ship the inventory and how do I find the product to now you've got a base and you can focus on that one thing that's going to make your story stand out from the rest. Mm, I love that. And that's the perfect segue to the third part of this conversation, which is recurring revenue, creating that e-commerce website for yourself. And in your avenue, it's using Amazon. So can you talk about, as you already kind of done, maybe it's repeating something for a little bit, the course, um, recurring revenue, how that would work for someone and how people are able to make themselves successful in the, on the online business, which I know is a very, very hot topic nowadays. Yeah, so for you guys who don't know, Amazon in 2010, Bezos decided, hey, I'm going to open up our platform to be not only books, but other things. And not only that, I'm going to let third-party sellers sell on the platform. So most people don't know this. When they go onto Amazon to buy something, you are not necessarily buying that thing from Amazon. You may be buying it from someone like Randy or someone like me who's opened up an Amazon store and is selling their products on the Amazon platform. Amazon takes a commission. Now, one thing that Amazon did that was brilliant is that Bezos coming from D.H. Hutton, coming from one of the biggest VCs in the world, said, you know what's going to change this game? If we take the business of fulfilling, of pick, pack, and shipping to the end customer out of the equation, 
for our vendors, for the people that are selling on our platform. Now, if we do that, we're going to be able to create this great user experience, which Bezos is really into. He, he's all about having Amazon be easy, trustworthy, simple, fantastic experience, right? You click, there's a nice man in a blue shirt at your door delivering mm -hmm. your box. It's, it's effortless. If you don't like it, they take it back. No questions asked. It's spectacular. So doing that, he figured we got to get that straight, but how am I going to figure that out? Cause he knew nothing about that. So he went off allegedly and poached one of Walmart's top logistics guys. And he said, here's an open checkbook, build me the best packing, shipping, warehouse business in the world. Money is no object. Do it. And he took cheap money from Wall Street because he was very well connected through his former employer, D.H. Hutton, and through others on Wall Street. And he put it in and he said, guys, we might lose money for 10 years, but on year 11, it's going to be gangbusters. And that's how it was. And so he built out this distribution. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that we no longer have to worry about packing boxes in our garage and tape and boxes and all this. We can order a product in China, focus on what we do best, telling that amazing story that connects, that influences people. And Amazon will take care of everything else. We order the product in China. It goes to the Amazon warehouse. We may never see it. We might get a couple samples sent to our house so we could check it out before we make our big order. And that's it. Amazon handles everything else. It's glorious. And then when you do like what me and my family did, you know, we traveled out to Italy, we went to Greece, we sailed the Greek Isles, we were in um, Santorini off of uh, Santorini in Greece or Italy, I forget, I think it's Greece. I, I think it's Greece. Yeah, I think it's Greece. But then after that, we went to Positano, which is Italy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're, we're, we're sailing off all these little beautiful seaside villages. And in the meanwhile, while we're traveling and eating you know, beautiful grilled fish and Mediterranean food and having this amazing time every minute, ching, 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 we're making money. The cash register is ringing because Amazon has created recurring revenue streams for us. And we don't have to do much. I've got VAs set up all over the world and we teach the system on how to do this in different time zones. So I've got VAs in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, South and Central America, Venezuela, where you can actually get amazing quality workers, people with MBA level degrees for under eight bucks an hour working for you, running your business in a, a way that you never could. And all this leads to the main thing in life, which is time. Time is the new luxury. It's not money, it's time, it's freedom. And being able to do what you want, when you want, where you want, and with who you want. That's what we're all chasing. That's what we're all after. And there's a few different ways now to make that possible, but creating these recurring revenue streams, it's not Randy getting rich quick. It's not, hey guys, check out my Lambo, check out my Ferrari, check out my Porsche. I mean, I have all that shit. I just don't flaunt it because I don't need to. It's mm. about the hard work that it takes to build these businesses. And you might fuck up. You might mess it up the first time. You might mess it up the first 10 times, but you know what? You're going to get it on that 11th time. And when you do, it'll be set up and it'll become virtually effortless. So I've got people like my wife who started a company using our algorithms in our course. And 
she takes care of my kid and runs the household, but she also runs this Amazon company that's worth a few million bucks and she works a couple hours a week. And the reason why she can do that is because of the way Amazon is set up and because she follows our algorithms and outsourced. Got it. That was an amazing explanation. So I think what you also talked about where time is money is really interesting now, especially during the pandemic, everyone's working remotely who had the nine to five corporate jobs. Now they realize I don't want to go back in office. I want to have that freedom to wake up a little bit later so I can surf in the morning. I want to be able to get off of work early, go surf in the afternoon. And this is a really good way to do it. So do you think the corporate nine to five is going to start to slowly die as people try to go back in the office and they want to continue to have this freedom? You know, the trend seems to be heading in that direction. But I think when people get the opportunity, I think they will go back to the office to some degree. Because for certain businesses, you do need to have that physical presence. And there's something about having your team all in one place mm -hmm. that you just don't get in Zoom. It just doesn't happen. People yeah. are doing all kinds of crap on Zoom. So maybe what it will be is a hybrid. I don't know. I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is something that one of my mentors always told me is that you always need people to captain the trains and to ride the boats. And someone's always got to drive the train. And what that means is that the people that really want to build their lifestyle of freedom and with recurring revenue and using these algorithms and finding good mentorship and mentorship programs that they can be involved in to invest in their well-being, but also invest in their personal development, those people will have the opportunity to work from wherever the world they want, like I do. I bring my laptop and you know, I took my whole family to the Grand Canyon. You know, We were doing Amazon in the car on the road trip there. Super easy to do. But for other people, you know, there'll, there'll always be people selling their hours, unfortunately. But for the people who we know and the people who we try to impact, we try to get them to a place where they're no longer selling their hours for money. That's the goal. Got it. And do you have any success stories that you can share with people to get them interested in what you've been able to do? Besides for your wife, of course. <laughs> yeah. So my wife was a, a perfect example. You know, she used to work for the United Nations. She worked right under Kofi Annan. She was Kofi Annan's publicist, who was the uh, general, the general, whatever it was, the main dude. He was like the president of the United Nations. And that guy, uh, she was working for him. She was, you know, pretty much in a public type of a life doing publicity for them. And then we had our kid and she was like, look, I can't work in public sphere anymore. I need to, you know, go private. And so then what she did was she started this company selling these really cutesy things like recipe tins and greeting cards and candles. And I was like, dude, no one's going to buy that. And of course I was wrong. And the first year she made an extra 75 grand in, in income. And she was like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is almost as much as I'm getting, you know, working for the United Nations. And then the next year she made 150 grand. She was like, whoa, and now she's sitting on a company that she's had a few offers to sell for a couple million bucks. And she really puts very little time into it. I've got other people who have kept their jobs. So they're still working a full-time job and they have their wife or their husband or their girlfriend doing this on the side. And they're making five, 10, 20, $30,000 a month in extra recurring revenue. A lot of it has to do with how much you're willing to put in, how much time you're willing to put in. 
But in general, building up these e-commerce businesses is one pillar that really shouldn't be neglected, especially nowadays. I agree. And that's really interesting because I used to work for a Shopify company and I would talk to all these merchants all the time on the Shopify space about how they've been able to build their recurring revenue. And they're like, yeah, this is just something I do on the side hobby to, to just have an extra cash. So like if someone were to say between Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, is there a difference in the platforms or is there some, one that's better than the other? Yeah. So there's this guy who wrote this book called Influence. His name is Professor Caldini. Have you ever read Influence? I have not, but I will uh, look it up. Great. You should definitely get it. Influence is one of those canonical books. That's like, you know, the one book that unites them all. And he's written a subsequent book to that called Persuasion. And in it, he talks about the five elements of persuasion. Why am I telling you this? Okay. So you've got social proof, reviews, authority, doctor approved, likability. Are you describing it in a way that I describe it to you? Randy, this is the best surfboard dude. It takes wax so great. The fins are awesome. Let's go surf. Are you like the X5 Shanghai surfboard, whatever, right? Scarcity. Dude, there's only two of these left. Grab it quick because they're going fast. Everybody is buying these. And reciprocity. If I give you something, you're going to want to give me something. Mm -hmm. So you have these elements of influence. I think I might've missed one. Consistency is the other one. Staying, people, people like to be consistent to their word. So if you're like, hey man, I want a red car that goes hundred miles an hour and is under $20,000. If I'm like, here you go, here's a red car. It's, it's, you know, goes hundred miles an hour. It's under $20,000. You can't then be like, oh yeah, no, I want this or that. Most people mm. aren't. Most people keep to their word and that's consistency. One of the elements of influence. So anyway, we use those elements to tell a better story on the Amazon platform. We use images, video, copy, all that stuff, but the elements of influence as applied to an Amazon listing. Now, how does that apply to Etsy? How does it apply to eBay, Walmart, all these other platforms? It's a very similar language. Influence doesn't change because influence is between you and me, person to person. What changes is slightly how you tell that story. So what we teach is once you get your Amazon store up and running, you can do the same thing on all the other platforms with minor tweaks. People on Etsy like to think that things are handmade and that it's, you know, small makers or whatever. It's all bullshit because everything's made in China. And the majority of people who are selling shit on Etsy are, are making it in China and selling it as handcrafts. But you want to target your marketing towards your audience. Mm. So it's just a matter of applying certain hacks to changing it. And Shopify, which I think is one of the most promising things, is something that I think everybody's got to have in addition to your Amazon store. And what you can do is once you build up your Amazon following, you start funneling those customers over to the Shopify where you own them. Mm, I love that. And, you know, I'm going to end that part of the conversation there because I don't want you to give away too many of your secrets, <laughs> but that's really good. So if people wanted to find you and they wanted to have opportunity, as you said, that uh, have the free link that usually people pay for, or uh, honestly sign up for your class. How can people do that? Sure. So you can go to FBA sellercourse.com. That's FBA sellercourse.com. It'll be in the link, fill out the form. Just let us know that you want the free one hour course. I'm happy to share that with you. You can also go to shaheenshayen.com. That's my name.com. S-H-A-A-H-I-N-C-H-E-Y-E-N-E.com. And that'll also be in the links below. 
additionally, you guys can email me. I'll give away my direct email. I answer every email directly. It might take me a minute because we get lots of inquiries, but if anybody's got any questions, my email is darkzess at gmail.com. That's D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. And always happy to connect with people and see if Amazon and selling on Amazon is the right fit for you. Awesome. I was not expecting that to be your email. <laughs> I, yeah, like, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I almost forgot. I should tell your viewers and listeners that we also have an awesome podcast. We love to share with you guys and it's absolutely free. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. I think we're up to 65,000 subscribers right now. We get great guests on like Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator, author of Never Split the Difference, Keith Ferrazzi, uh, all kinds of amazing guests on there. So please join us on Hack and Grow Rich. You can just find us on YouTube or uh, anywhere where Spotify, Stitcher, uh, anywhere where podcasts are found. Great. And again, all that will be in the link in the bio, however you're listening. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such an open, candid conversation for an hour. If someone were going to take and not listen to the past 59 minutes and you wanted them to have a one-minute soundbite of the key points we spoke about today and how they can improve their lives, what would that be? Well, I think if you want to improve your life, you need to have financial freedom. If you want to have financial freedom, you need to create multiple streams of predictable recurring revenue with systems that never fail. And that's what we teach through Amazon Mastery. So come join us. We've got a one hour course, normally 200 bucks. We'll offer it up to any of your listeners for free by clicking on one of the links below. Fantastic. And again, my name is Randy Silver. Thank you so much for coming on today. If you found this content, you love this podcast, please go follow him, go follow his channels. Uh, I already am. So I'm really excited to continue to understand how I can help make all these recurring revenue happen in my life. So that way I don't have to have that nine to five moving forward. If you like Leap of Fate, please do go subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, however you're listening on the YouTube channel. Please go follow the videos. Thank you so much. I would love to do a sign off with you. So please repeat after me. Stay healthy. Stay healthy. Stay wealthy. Stay wealthy. And have a good week, fans. And have a good week, fans. Deuces. Bye, everybody. Have a good one.